Morning, good to be with you guys. Hey, if you're new, welcome. My name's Jeff, and if um, you, know, you snuck in, I, I, you know, we actually say a lot as a staff, we're like, you know, I can't believe we have like the friendliest church in the world. But if you happen to sneak in without getting your hand, you know, shaken, shook, what would be the correct one? Hand? How many say it should be hand shaken? How many say it should be hand shook? It seems like, how many people have no idea what grammar, about anything grammar-wise? Okay. If someone didn't greet you when you came in, uh, I, which would be amazing, but if you didn't, let me just say it, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. You know, we say a lot of, uh, in a lot of different ways that, you know, for people who have never been to church or people who haven't been in a really long time, we just really are glad that you're here. We want to speak in a clear, plain language about um, who God is, about Jesus, and um, we, we talk about Jesus in this way that there is, uh, you know, we are a group of people trying to follow Jesus as much as we know how. We are trying to learn what it means to love other people in the way that Jesus loved other people. And we believe wholeheartedly that no one in here does that perfectly and that everybody has a little room to grow in that. So if you're looking for maybe some way to grow a little bit, this would be, um, this is, man, you're in the right spot. We are all in a work in progress. Um, this Thursday night, we had, we had our second Thursday night service. It was very, very fun. Again, this is sort of, uh, it's a new thing for us. We're aiming at sort of a, a younger audience of people. And like I've told you before, the, the music is very loud. I talked to some of you who are, don't fit in sort of that younger audience category. You're a little bit more young at heart. And you're like, can we go? And I go, yeah, are you okay with your ears bleeding? Because it's really loud. And it is really, really fun. It's a great, 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 great service. We've had a great time already. Love for you to be a part of it. If you're kind of following the 18 to 25-year-old category, you know folks who are looking to get reconnected to church. It's been very, very cool. So let you know what's going on with that. <clears throat> I also was yelling all day yesterday. We had, not in anger, just some of you looked at me like, I know, you were, you were yelling, huh? No, we were, uh, I, I was yelling at my children because I coached their soccer team. Uh, but So I'm a little bit hoarse, and you have to just help me, just kind of bear with me. If my voice cracks like I'm a 14-year-old boy, just bear with me, all right? Especially if it's in a moment that's like really serious in the service. Just ignore it, okay? Um, but like I said, we're a group of people who believe everybody has a next step. We believe everybody has an opportunity to see some transformation in their lives. And we're in a series called, not all that cleverly, Transformed. And what we've been saying over this past couple of weeks is that there are things broken within all of us that are not 100% right. And that every single person in this room, everybody in the world, is in need of some kind of tune-up. Some of us imagine that our tune-up is a little tweaking, but God might actually have a different idea about us than what he might say. Maybe what you imagine as a tune-up is really something more significant. That maybe you could involve me perhaps in that process a little more deeply because there's a whole life transformation at stake. And so if 100% of us have a sense that maybe there's some things that aren't right, most of us would also agree that we don't always know how to do it. And so as we talked about it last week, a couple of things kind of came up just to get us in the same frame of mind. One of the ways in which we talk about our own lives is in terms of the things of our attachment. So what we said last week was this idea here. The things to which we attach ourselves form the essence of who we will become. So right now, even as we're sitting right here, as we talked about last week, the things to which you have already attached yourselves in your life are the things that shape who you will become. Okay, we have, this is just sort of the basic premise. If you missed last week, you know, check out the podcast. But just to, this is, we have to start with this baseline. Secondly, what we said is when we talk about transformation, we talk about it in these terms. Transformation is the result, essentially, of transitioning our attachments from one thing to another. And over the course of this series, hopefully we get a sense that really what we're looking at is what, what things might attach to us, might th what things ought, ought we to attach our own lives to as we look, about, look at the, the prospect of transformation. Now, what everybody's looking for as they imagine their lives being different than they are now, that the end result of that, at least, some t at least increasing by some measure of degrees, is some kind of peace. We're longing to see that our lives would be more whole, that we wouldn't be as crazy or anxious, or that the broken pieces of our lives might come back together in such a way that we would feel a sense of peace. So... 
with that kind of background from last week, let's pray and then we'll talk about today's message. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful that you gather us here. We're grateful that we get a chance to be able to respond to you. Lord, there are parts of us in our lives, there are some of us, it's our whole life where we feel trapped, we feel confined, we feel overwhelmed, we feel lost and lonely. Others of us, Father, we know feel a sense of great joy, and yet there are parts of our lives that are still in need of transformation. Jesus, today, might you allow us the reality, the experience, the knowledge of being fully alive people. God, might for just a moment as we pause, that you might speak to us. Might you remind us that you have come to bring dead things back to life. That whatever is broken or needs work in us is not something that simply maybe can be handled by a little bit of tweaking here and there, but that really requires the full force of your Holy Spirit within us. Jesus, might we understand that that is a picture of your love too. So Father, would you just for 10 seconds or so, just a short time of stillness, might you gift us with a knowledge that you have loved us deeply and Father, that you, um, Father, that you would you long for us to be transformed more and more into your image, Jesus. And so, it's in your name, Father, um, that we just give you a second to pause. Jesus, we're grateful for a few seconds of stillness. For some of us, it's our only time in our week where we actually exhale. Might the gentleness and passion and depth of your love be around us, be aware, be present to us, that we respond to it. In your name, Jesus, amen, amen. All right, now, when you came in, you got a bulletin. On the back of that bulletin is an outline. You can follow along if you'd like. We're going to be in a couple different places today in the Bible. Mainly we'll be in Romans chapter 5 and 6, but, um, you know, we're, we'll be kind of bounced around a little bit. But you can follow along there. If you don't have, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, don't worry. Everything you'll need will be on the screen. Some of you I know are furious note takers. Others of you just don't, you just want to stare at me. Others of you are here for nap time. I get it. Uh, so whatever, whatever you want to do, hopefully some of it will sink in, whatever you best need. Um, but as we talk about this, continue, we're in this series, which is really about Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And people talked to me last week and said, you're not going to talk about Romans 12 or Romans 3 or whatever. And I go, we, we could spend years just talking about Romans. It is that complicated. But we're just going to spend a couple weeks talking about those four chapters, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And what I want to say to you in that is, um, it is, it is, you could sum up a lot of this whole language of transformation and even the whole conversation about the Bible in really one question, which is really important to be asking all the time, which is this one right here. As people have interactions with Jesus, as people have interactions with God, as people have interactions with God's people, the question who's in charge here is one of the most important questions to be asked. As you're reading the Bible, as you're looking at, this, at all of what God is revealing in the story of the Bible, in God's, the, God, the movement of God through his people and in the early church, what you have to wonder is who's in charge here. Because always what's happening is a claim against people's authority. Now, this, uh, this past summer, my kids went, my two of my kids went to skateboard camp. They went to skate camp right here at, at Etney Skate Park off of Lake Forest. You know, and uh, I, I am not, I, I mean, I, I can skate 
when I was like younger. Now I'm like, it hurts when you fall on stuff. So I don't do it anymore. But I, I could skate and no, but I wasn't good. I mean, people did not stop and go, wow, there's a very average skater right there. That's amazing. Nobody ever stopped and watched me. They just made sure when I fell, they, I didn't die. But my kids are interested in it. My youngest is my youngest son who is, uh, at that time he's six, and my, um, my daughter who is nine. And they're at this skate, they want to go, they want to do skateboard camp. And we're like, we're not sure about skateboard camp. So my my wife, Amanda, takes the kids to the skate park to just watch, you know, watch them and see how it goes and see what kind of the environment is. And this is before camp. And so she watches these, she watches the, well, I should say this way too. By the way, we go to this place to sign up and it's like every stereotype you have about people who would be running a skateboard camp is true. Just so you know. <laughs> so she's like, what's skateboard camp like? And they, this is her impression of these guys. So they're, evidently what they say to her is, well, um, it's not, <laughs> some of you are already laughing. Well, uh, it's not, we don't just only skate. We also have chips. She's like, chips? Yeah, we got chips and Gatorade. They, like, take breaks. We, like, play games. And so she's like, oh, okay, great. She's like, Jeff, I'm not sure about this. So <laughs> we got pizza. Sounds like a wonderfully supervised environment. Uh, so she goes back, takes the kids there. Here's what she witnesses. On one occasion, there's a guy who's, kind of acting like he's the coolest guy in the whole place, uh, one, you know, a skater kid who's a little older than the other kids, a little bigger, and he starts bullying another kid. So she's watching this happen. And she sees what, now she's watching, her eyes immediately go over to the, <clears throat> the little, like, booth where these guys are hanging out, you know, with the chips. They're hanging out, and she's seeing what's happening over there. And as this guy's witnessing this bullying incident take place, the guy jumps through the little service window, you know, so there's, like, a door where you could walk out, but this guy, like, jumps through the window runs over to the bully incident, and he, he goes, hey, what are you, hey, sorry, hey, what are you doing? And he takes this guy's skateboard, and he, ch the bully, he takes the bully skateboard and chucks it over the fence. <laughs> to, which Amanda was like, yeah, I love this. I mean, that's justice, right? And the guy's like, the kid is like, what are you doing? And the guy's like, hey, if you're going to skate here, you don't do bullying, bro. And the guy's like, well, what do, you, what do you mean? I'll do what I want. And the guy goes, hey, you know what? We can do this however you want. You can leave or we can call the cops. The kid goes, call the cops. The sheriff's station is a block away from the skate park. It's like, okay, beep, boop, beep. Woo. I mean, it's like right there. It's like not even a moment. The guy, the, the police come, they're like, they're talking to this guy, he's crying, the guy's getting a skateboard, and, the, and the, you know, this kid, this, the, the skateboard, you know, <laughs> I was going to call him skateboard sheriff, but the skateboard guy, the, like, the guy who was running the skateboard area, he just, go, he just goes, hey, look, don't come back if you don't have the right attitude here. It was like all the moms, all the minivans and the Ford Flexes and the everything else were high-fiving each other like, woo, we love this. So we signed up for camp. Now, <laughs> Now, what's happening in that scene, what's happening in that story is literally it's a battle of wills. And the question is, who's in charge here? Do the kids who are meaner and bigger than other kids, do they win the day or does someone else win the day? And if the right people have the authority, then we're cool with our kid going to your camp. Now, when you look at the Bible, one of the most critical things you have to ask is, as you see people who have a battle of wills, what you're seeing is some people have what's called dominion or are claiming dominion. Some people have authority. So much of the language in the Bible is about who has the authority, the dominion, the rule, or the reign. Now, it's really important when we start talking about the writing that Paul has for his church in Rome, for this church in Rome, it's really important that you understand those words, what what's actually at stake. Dominion, rule, reign, these kinds of things really matter. 
Now, because we're in a, um, we're kind of walking through this idea of, of Romans, let's all start in Genesis chapter 1, okay? Here we go. All right, here we go. Now, part of this is, part of the reason why we have to do this is this. The, the, the New Testament, the part of the Bible that covers Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection in the early church, that part of the, that part of the Bible, with the exception of the, what's called the Gospels and Acts, it's a lot of explaining terms, and it's really hard to understand. In fact, we said this last week, is that this, the, the conversation about this, these chapters, Romans, is really, it's really what Christians call deep stuff, like it's so deep. What they really had just translated, if you were with us last week, is we don't understand it, but it's so deep, right? So what I love about the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is that you get pictures. You get word pictures for things. And you get actual narrative events that sort of like create a story that's a little bit easier to handle when we talk about this stuff. So in order to understand Romans 5, you've got to understand this. This. There it is. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. Now, the way God intended human beings to be is that they would be rulers. Some translations have the word have dominion over. Okay? Now, next. And over all the creatures that move along the ground. What's being said here is that nothing created should have dominion over human beings. Now, the one who is the creator, the creation always implies lordship. This is the person who's over everything else. But you have human beings who are not intended to be ruled by any other created thing. Now, what will happen, then you'll see in the story, some of you know the story, it's famous. In fact, most of Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, is generally known as pretty famous stories. But what you have, what happens is, God gives to the, these human beings, the first human beings, he gives to them an instruction. Hey, just don't eat here. And they're like, wow, that sounds pretty good, except we, now we kind of might want to eat there. And the story goes that the serpent comes to them and says, hey, you probably should eat there. And the reason why you should is because God's withholding something great from you that you ought to have. You should have it. Now remember, this serpent has no power over the human beings. None. Here's what happens, verse five, chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Sounds pretty good because you don't know now and you might want this. So, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, they have deliberately done something that they were not supposed to do under, and what you have here essentially is a misappropriation of dominion and power. Remember that God has given to human beings the authority over every other, th every other created thing. They're intended to have dominion, to have authority and rule. And there then the serpent says, well, wouldn't you guys like to? And they surrender their authority to a serpent who crawls along the ground. Here's what happens to them. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. The other way to sort of describe this idea of nakedness is as one who feels shame. They had yet to have felt shame before. And so here's their response. See if this sounds familiar a little bit. I'll give you why this makes sense in a second. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They have the experience of shame and they do what all of us do is we try to cover it up. We have to figure out a way to deal with the things that aren't all right. Because we have surrendered our authority to something else or someone else. And now feel shame and we need a way to deal with it. So we cover it up. This is essentially what I would say is sin management. It's a way of sort of going, there's things that aren't working out in our lives. And so we work pretty hard at figuring out ways to cover those things up. 
Call it physical appearance, call it career advancement, call it more money than the other guy, call it my kids behave better than your kids, call it my kid got into a better college than you, I got into a better college, whatever it is that you want to call it. But there is this way in which we look at our lives and go, if I could sort of put some coverings over them, then everything would be fine. A couple verses later, what you get it, well, by the way, I should say, this, this idea of covering over, of making things right that are sort of not right by our own, by, by what any means is this word atonement. You get this throughout the Bible. Literally, it translates covering. The people try to make an atonement, a covering for themselves for the things they haven't done or the things that they're shamed about. The Bible will later say this in chapter 3. There, oops. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, in other words, they could not, by way of their own management, atone, cover for the stuff that they had got themselves into. Only God could do that for them. They have leaves covering stuff, right? So they don't feel the same shame, but it's not sufficient. So God has to make clothes for them to cover them, to atone, to make things as they ought to be. Now, this takes us kind of into the present of where we are with our, with, in Romans chapter, chapter 5. The only covering over us that was the one that God gives to us. And you have this story as a background. We start talking about ruling and reigning and authority and all that kind of stuff. So take a look in Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Here's what you get first. For if by the trespass of one man, this is speaking about Adam, the guy we just talked about who ate some, you know, forbidden, forbidden fruit. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man. Now we have to ask the question. Remember, we're dealing with a lot of concepts here. But let me just, the question you're asking here, what has reigned? Okay, verse 17, let's go back again. What's reigning? Death reigned. The thing that has authority and power and dominion since that one guy did that one thing way back when, along with his wife, is that death entered into the world and death reigned. What is reigned? Death. Now, Paul's speaking about it in the past tense. To this church, these are all people who are followers of Jesus, who are figuring out what that means. And he's posing this question, well, what is now reigning? If death once reigned, well, what is now reigning? Here's what it says in Romans 5.17, the rest of the verse. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in the life through, reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now you have one man, there's death, that's Adam, and another man, through this, this man named Jesus Christ, who gives to us not death, but this, I, this whole picture of righteousness that reigns. In other words, there's something that God gives to people in Jesus, which, we, which is this provision of grace, he says, which gives to people righteousness. Now, we have to understand, too, if you're with us last week, it's really important to understand what righteousness literally means. Okay? It translates like this. There's the Greek word there, dikaiosune. Righteousness is a state of being, one who is as they ought to be. Notice what it does not say. It is not one who acts as they ought to act. It is a state of being of one who is as they ought to be. Which means, when the Apostle Paul is writing here, what he's saying is, there was death. Death is not what should rule over your life. He says, there's something else now which should have reigning authority over in your life, and it's not death, it's righteousness. Meaning, there's a transformation that happens in Jesus, a gift given to, his own, to people who would choose to follow him, in which they get to become more and more as they ought to be. 
it isn't simply that people act the way they're supposed to act. More often than as I talk to people who come to our church or have questions about Jesus, they wonder, how am I supposed to act? And they wonder about how do I manage those things? And none of that's really sufficient. What he will say is what Paul will say to his church. you got to have Jesus or it's not happening. This isn't just simply about trying to act as you ought to be. It's about becoming a certain kind of person. Paul says that only comes in this person of Jesus. Let's give you down to verse 20. Oops, that's too fast. For the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. This is sin. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This is kind of interesting he's starting to say here. He's saying sin is really, it's terrible. But there's this really great thing called grace. And he says that the law was brought in so people might have a, this is another way of saying it. Essentially, there would be an awareness of things that are still not as they ought to be. So people have to be aware of that. And he says grace, this thing given to people, this gift given of being made righteous in Jesus, is given so that, you know, it's given so that it can overcome sin. So that just as sin reigned in death, there's the word reigning again, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life to, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the way in which things are going to be as they ought to be have to come through Jesus. And the way, in which we're, the way in which we're seen isn't as people who are simply sinners. We're seen as these people who are made righteous through Jesus. We're not identified as people who are sinners. We're identified as people who are made right in this person of Jesus. Now, it raises a couple questions. First, is sort of the very nature and the idea of sin. And there's some fuzzy math here, first of all, which is, you know, Paul is he's provoking a question here, which he'll provoke in one second, which is this. If sin is bad and grace is good, and the more sin there is, the more grace there is, and grace is better. So maybe I, do we sin more so that there's more grace? All right, let's get the party started because that's all good. We're all going to do whatever we want so that there's more grace. Isn't that what God wants for us? Woo, I love that. Okay, not yet. Hold on. Okay? Now, here's what I want you to catch. A couple things you have to understand about sin. And my guess in this room, sin is the most uncomfortable word in the world. People are like, you know, it was funny. Even though I was putting my notes in today, I was like, I'm like reading stuff, and I'm like, sin, 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 sin. It's just, I, mean, I imagine people imagine what a pastor does in the morning is just write down notes of sin. Like, yeah, just sins of those people and sins of that. I don't have any sin because other people, I'm a pastor. You know, whatever. I mean, just, just people imagine that, right? So I want to give you three camps as we talk about sin. It's really important you understand this. Check this out. First is this. That. There we go. First is this. As we think about sin, a lot of people will say sin is subjective and how I live may not matter. In other words, based on whatever the circumstances or the judgments are of the particular group of people in a circumstance, well then, that kind of determines what sin is. It's sort of subjective. My dad actually is one of those people who believes that. He's like, well, you know, you think it's that, but other people think it's this, and other people think it's that, and so how, who's right? And that's a pretty prevailing kind of idea in our world. Like, well then, Nothing really is ever wrong based except by perspective. So I was, you know, for some of you, you're like, maybe if you hold this kind of view, you're like, look, it's objectively justice that that guy got his skateboard chucked over the fence. You know, like maybe that, that's, well, maybe not. Because others of you in here, if you hold this view, would say, well, maybe it, we kind of ought to build kids who are stronger. And maybe the strong should survive. And then rather than rescuing a kid, maybe we should, get, maybe we should just help that kid get stronger. Maybe, that's, maybe, maybe the bullying scenario is something where, you know, it's like we, justice looks different. Maybe it's for, maybe it's something, all of a sudden we start having this gray area about what actually constitutes sin. And you don't really ever know if what, how you live or do things really ever matters except to a few people around you. That's one view of sin. The other is this. Sin is real. It's subjective. But how I live doesn't matter because now we're under this thing called grace. 
Some of us grew up with this idea. This is kind of how I grew up. Like, this is what I understood. Like, it doesn't matter what you do ever, really. You could do almost anything. And then because God's grace is free gift he gives to people who want to follow him, it doesn't matter. Everything's cool. And I have, the, the impression I have is this, this, basically the way this works is like, God, it's, it's imagining that you have a credit card of which you can buy whatever you want. And you never have to do, you just keep going back to God going, God, hey, am I hit my limit. Can you just credit me some money so I can do more stuff? And you just imagine this is all God does. Sure, sure, sure. Whatever else you want to do, whatever you need. Hurt whoever, be selfish with whatever. Just whatever, I'm always here to just give you stuff. God essentially becomes a bank teller in that regard. And there's another one. Sin is a real thing, and it's objective. And people who live with this idea, this other idea, live in either, either fear or pride because it's grace. Yes, we understand grace, but grace is for the righteous, and so it's a little grace plus. So yes, God forgives everything I do, but I better do some stuff right, or else God is going to come get me. That's the fear. He will punish me. I'll be abandoned. He'll know, I, my full, truest self will be known, and I will be seen as this, I'll be seen as a horrible person. Or the other side of it is, because I'm, I act pretty awesome, I'm probably better than most people. You know, I mean, I know, other, I, I'm, I, know I have a little bit of stuff i got to work on, but everybody else, look what I do. Now, in this situation, some people grow up in churches that feel like this, or maybe you have an experience or perception of church which is like this, which is this. That what happens is, people who live like this generally live very secret lives. Whatever isn't all right in their lives, they have to bury because if they get discovered, well, then all of a sudden they're going to be in trouble and it will be a big awful thing. And so there's a lot of sin management going on here. None of these are sufficient at all, Paul will say. He'll talk about this. He'll say there's something in which when we talk about sin, it isn't simply any one of those categories. What he'll say is he'll go like this. Look, because he's writing about how sin, and there's this really cool thing called grace, which comes in Jesus. so great. And then he says, look, he says, look, what should we say then to these people? Shall we go on sinning so that grace shall increase? By no means. Now what he's saying is, that's crazy. For some of you, he's talking to church. Some of you, you know, church in Rome. You guys are thinking, I can do whatever I want and it doesn't matter. In fact, that's even better because that means more grace. And he goes, shut up, that's stupid. That's really what he's saying. And he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Which means he's proposing an alternative. Verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Here's the idea of baptism, okay? Just really quickly. Baptism is a word that, word that literally means immerse, to submerge under something else. It also has this connotation of being placed into something else. So what Paul is saying is, you people who belong to Jesus have been placed into Christ Jesus. Meaning that you are your old self has been, is dead, and your new self is this person identified with Jesus. What is understood in baptism is this. That the substance into which people are being baptized or immersed transmits its own properties to that thing which is being baptized. In other words, people take on the properties of the thing to, into which they're being baptized. And he says, you're taking on the properties of Christ Jesus. So you don't, you don't know, you don't, you don't need to be, the sin is not really any, it's not really has this power over you at all anymore. Death doesn't have power over you anymore. Verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, putting to death an old life, in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now here's what he's saying. It's really important. There used to be a way that you lived. Remember, it was this way where death reigned, where there was the sin, all that stuff reigned, and now there's something new. You're becoming new. There's a new kind of attachment in your life. You used to be attached to sin. Remember, the attachment is what shapes us. 
and now there's something else that's being attached to you and to which you're being attached. He'll use even more dramatic language. Remember, we're talking about dominion and reigning and power and authority. Check this out. He'll use this language here. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, put to death, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, a slave is, a, is the most dramatic example in which there is a power structure of authority or dominion over another person. And he says, we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The language of slavery is so strong. Now my guess is, for many of us in the room, if we're really, if we took a moment, we're just really honest with ourselves. There are parts of us by which we feel like, you know what? I wish it wasn't true, but I do feel like there's parts of my life for which I'm just a slave to them. It's a desire. It's a habit. For some of you, it might even be an addiction. There are things in your life that God is at work and you're going, I just, I can't break free from it. I feel a sense of slavery. I have to tell you, I get it. I understand. I have been there. I have understood that. I have walked through people with that pain, and I get it. And I was um, my. I have. I have no. I have no country music roots. Okay, just want to let you, in case you're wondering. Some of you are like, really? Shocker. Okay, but my um, my. I married into them. <laughs> Amanda, is, my wife, is from Oklahoma and Texas, and you know, like, so that's where she grew up, and so. I have, I don't have, I can't say I have an appreciation for country music. Let me just start right there. Some of you love country music. You're like, why don't we, why don't we have country music every week in church? And I go, because that's what they play in hell. Okay, I just want to let you know. But we just want to honor God here. That's what, thank you, amen. Just, we just, we're about God's work here, okay. Uh, <laughs> but, because I mean, really, honestly, every country music, every country, I mean, I feel like I could win a, I cannot sing worth a darn, okay. But I feel like. I could, win a, I could win a Grammy in country music. You only have to talk about like four things. It's like a, a girl that ran away on you, a truck, a dog, and maybe mention the word beer in one of your songs. I once had a girl and she ran away. I got a truck, a dog, America, beer. I mean, that's all you have to say. That's the whole, that's the whole, thank you. Thank you all. Yeah. That's all we got to say. Yep. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Okay, now. What I have come to understand is that some of, some of what makes country music appealing to people is that it at least at some level expresses some kind of honesty about life. And there is an old country singer I'm finding. I don't know this person. You know, I don't know. I have no records or, you know, CDs or downloads or whatever this. But I'm learning about this person named Merle Haggard. Some of you know who that is. Yeehaw. Yeah, man. He's awesome. Man, we're going to have him in here. Is he dead? Did he die? I don't know. Is he alive? Someone who yeehaw? Is he alive? He's alive. Yeehaw, man. All right. America. Okay, now. <laughs> Check out these lines. See if you connect with these, these lines from one of his songs. But I can't stand myself at times. Anybody ever feel like that? And you're better off just to leave and forget me because I can't hold myself in line. Hey, my weakness is stronger than I am. Guess I've always been the losing kind. Now, he sings it with kind of this happy tune. And it's like, wait a second, these words are pretty strong. For so many of us in our lives, we experience the pain and sorrow of our own shame or of our own bad decision-making, whatever you want to call it, our own sin, 
and we experience it like this. My weakness is stronger than I am. I can't handle it on my own. I've always been the losing kind. In other words, I'm just a slave to the sin that's in my life. We've all been there. And some of you are here going, I want to change my life. I don't know what that's supposed to look like. But I feel as though I've been attached to a master called sin. And it continues to have a ruling authority in my life. And I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? Here's what Paul will say. In the same way, this is verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. In other words, there seems to be almost, if you look really closely, like there's an act of will in choosing to live under the authority of sin. Said differently in verse 13, I'll say it this way. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. But rather offer yourselves to God. Let me stop here for just a moment. I want you to catch the idea of offering. When people make an offering, it is, an, it is something given of value to something else to express devotion. And in every circumstance, an offering is never an obligation. That's called payment. What Paul is pointing to here is, don't make an offering, an act of devotion. Don't give something, don't give anything of value, which in this case he says is yourself, to sin. Now that means it's not like we're just slaves to it. It means there's some, we are choosing it. He'll say it, he'll continuing on. Don't offer yourself, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Meaning, whether or not we make an offering, a free choice of our own will, we make an offering either to God or we make an offering to sin and evil. But in either circumstance, it's up to us. He's pointing to something really profound. For a lot of us, we maybe never have ever even wrestled with this idea. But in either case... People choose it. It's about power and people surrendering power. And he'll say it this way in the 14th verse to capture this in all its fullness. He'll say, For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Sin is not your master. Sin is not my master. It does not have authority over you. Now, Sin can speak to you. It can be taught. You can get that there is a way in which there is temptation that comes up and faces you. But you don't have to listen to it. Now, church people go, woo, that's so great. And now people who aren't sure about Jesus yet are like, why is that? I don't get it. Let me explain what I mean. Last year, I went to my 20th high school reunion, which some of you did the math and went, wow, you're older than I thought. Thank you for that. Um, but I went to my 20th high school reunion, and I'm, I'm walking in there. And, of course, basically walking in a reunion is basically all you're doing is comparing to see who kind of let themselves go a little bit over the past couple of years. And, you know, and you're kind of feeling insecure about the other people, what they do for a living. And, you know, I met one guy I, was, I went to high school with, I haven't connected with him all these years. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a professor in college, and I'm a hedge fund manager. And I'm like, do you own everything? Do you just buy stuff? He's like, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. But there's all these people of all these things. And they're all, you're all walking around looking at who lost more hair than you. And who, you're just like, this is great. This is awesome. And you revert, if you haven't been to a reunion, you know, if you have, you know what I'm talking about. You just kind of revert back to being back in the high school days. You're like, 
all the insecurities about yourself come up again, that, you know, all of those cool kids are still cool, even though you're like, you probably don't have as much to go on now, but you still kind of think that they're still cool, and they kind of run the show, and you're watching everything happen, and the most bizarre thing is that sometimes teachers show up that were part of your life from back in high school, and one of my favorite teachers showed up there, but he had a reputation, this guy, he was, um, he was my physics teacher my senior year of high school, and uh, he, uh, he, he would just, I went to a private high school where if you didn't have your shirt tucked in, you would just get a detention. Now, the standard detention is 15 minutes. But this guy, who would just prey on anybody who wasn't a senior in high school, he would just walk around and go, you have an hour detention, meet me after school. Just bam, detention, meet me after school. Just like, and he literally pointed people, you, what's your name? You have a detention. I'm in a room, whatever, come find me, please. After school, hour detention. He would just, just blast people. Now, remember, these are all high school kids who are growing. I was like... By the way, I'm 100% torso. This is all torso. That's, this is long ankles. I mean, I just, when I was in, in high school, I mean, I just was just, I'm, I'm stretching out like this just from my waist up. And, of course, the shirts never fit. And there's always like a little triangle. You know the triangle that has cut out for you? It's like always you can see my skin right there. Hour detention. Ah, you know, whatever. Now, I run into this guy at my reunion. And I go immediately back to where I was as a, you know, as a, just sort of this unwieldy freshman in high school. Like, oh, no, here he comes. Oh, what do I do? And I'm, like, totally afraid. And I kind of had this moment of, like, what if he gives me a detention? Now, imagine. I'm, you guys, I'm 39 years old, for those of you who didn't do the math yet. Um, imagine if this guy goes, and I'm, by the way, I don't know what to call him. His, you know, like, he, he introduced himself to Amanda as Ed. But I'm, like, that's, you get a detention if you call him Ed. So I don't, I don't really call him anything because I don't want to call him Mr. Cunningham because that's like, you know, that's his name. But it's like we're supposed to be friends now and I don't know what to do. So imagine if Mr. Cunningham says to me, McGuire, you're a slacker. Our detention. Now, imagine if I go. You guys would be like, uh, you know you're not in the school anymore, right, Jeff? You like have a job and a family and you're like beyond that, right? To which I would say, but he said I should, so I did. You would say, He's not your master. Why are you listening to him? The same thing is being said, Paul is saying, to us about sin itself. It is not your master. Stop listening to it. You can make an offering to that part of your life which has now been dead. You can try to bring that back if you want. You can make an offering of devotion if you want to that thing. But you are not subject to to it any longer. Woo. Now, here's what I want you to say to me, because you're like, I don't, I don't, I, I hear what you're saying, and I still don't, I'm still not, haven't taken it in. Let me just tell you a couple things. One is this. The longer we listen to the voice of sin, darkness, death, evil, Satan, the enemy, whatever you want, what, all of that, the more difficult it becomes to break the power of it at all. So if you're in a circumstance in which you have constantly bombarded yourself or the words have been coming at you of a lifestyle or a thought process or an ongoing belief, the easier it becomes to listen to that voice and to give it authority over you. The ultimate example, of course, is addiction itself. Where we begin to orient our lives entirely, even on a chemical basis, around certain things that we believe will deliver on promises they can never deliver. And for us, a group of people who are, in fact, a work, of pro work in progress, we get to look at those people, whether we're that or not, and we get to say, we get to have compassion for people in that situation. And we get to begin to help break the lies that they're believing by pointing them to Jesus, by coming around them. But here's what I want you to do. <clears throat> I want you to say, 
right now, out loud, on the count of three, sin is not my master, okay? That's all I want you to say. You're like, I can say that. That's it. You know, that's all I want you to say, okay? There it is. If you don't know how to read it or say it, that's it. That's our cue, okay? All I want you to say is sin is not my master on three. Okay, you guys ready? Nobody's ready. We're just going to take our chances. Here we go. One, two, three. Say it. Okay, that sounded a little bit like a cult. I just want to let you know how that sounded. So we're going to try that again, and we have to say it a little differently, because that sounded like, sin is not my master. We are a free-thinking group of people. You, nobody is under mind control. You are free to disagree. We'll point to you what we, we believe the Bible says, and you can wrestle with that on your own. We, but don't say it like that again, because it's really creepy. Sin is not my master. Blah. You know, okay, great. Okay. <laughs> last week, listen, last week where I had you guys like hand your Bibles to, or not your Bibles, your, your wallets to each other and like hold them and stuff like that. Yeah, so we have, a total, we have all the makings of a cult here. So let's be really careful about how we're saying this, all right? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to say this a little differently. Try and say sin is not my master with a little less <laughs> zombie tone, okay? All right? <laughs> One, two, three. Say it. Sin. The people said with joy, okay? Yes. Now. This is written for people who are walking with Jesus, who maybe have forgotten this reality. This isn't just simply about, this isn't simply willpower. It is about the power of Jesus in us. Acknowledging, Paul is, acknowledging that sin is not my master. Now, here's what I want you to do. This is going to be really bizarre for some of you, especially those of you guys who fall into that third category of sin sort of identification I talked about. Here's what I want you to do. This week, you're going to go and do whatever you're going to do, and whatever it is. Because you're already thinking about, well, sin is not my master. I guess I can't do that one thing that I always do. Okay, now let me just, you're going to be totally weirded out by this. I want you, just for this week, I don't want you to try to behave better. Okay, you're like, are you telling me I should just go sin? No. Here's all I want you to do. (laughs) That's the wrong woo, whoever said that. (laughs) There are right woos and wrong woos. That was wrong. Okay. On the way to whatever it is that you're going to do, I want you to say under your breath or out loud, sin is not my master. Whatever it is that you've already set out to do, your plans for whatever it is that you're planning on doing, whatever they are, I, all I want you to do on your way to those things is to simply say this, sin is not my master. I wish when I was growing up, I wish I had grown up with this understanding about what Paul is saying in the Bible because I understood two things and I kind of maneuvered through all the kind of sin understandings I wanted. Ah, I'm not sure that's sin or, you know, I can do whatever because God will forgive me or I better get it right or I better bury the things that aren't really good because I just don't know what else to do and none of those are sufficient. And Paul says, Jesus is sufficient. You may be weak, but Jesus is the one who gives to us the power of the Holy Spirit, gives to us strength to overcome in which we can declare with full authority, sin is not my master. In other words, this is about, when we talk about attachment, this is not about simply behavior modification. It is about an understanding of who has authority and who doesn't have authority or dominion over you in your life. Sin is not your master. Sin is not my master. That's all I want you to do this week. Sin is not my master. Let's pray together. Father, I know that there are people in our midst who are longing to see the reality of sin not being a master in their lives. Father, and it feels like, man, it feels like it's powerful. It feels like it has some kind of mastery. Lord, we 
we declare with authority and confidence that sin is not our master. Jesus, I know that in, in our midst too, there are people who are feeling like it to such a degree that they're longing to maybe receive prayer from people in our prayer team. Maybe they just need to come forward and confess it. Maybe they don't need to confess it fully, but they need to say in some way, at least right now, maybe they do eventually, but for right now, they just need to say, can you, to someone on our prayer team, can you put a hand on me and just, would you just, would you walk with me in this? Would you pray for me in this? Might God meet me in his power in it? So some of you may need to come forward in a little bit to pray with our prayer team or even place a prayer in the prayer wall that might be prayed for later. But Jesus, would you meet us here as we understand fully, we declare with our full voices that sin is not our master, that you reign, that you have authority, that you have dominion, and that, Father, our intention in our life is to be shaped by our attachment to you because you are the one who has authority and power and sin does not. So as we sing, Jesus, would you hear our prayer set to music? Might we respond with a full voice and a full confidence that we are liberated from the mastery of sin over us. That, Father, we willingly give ourselves to you. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.